Welcome to From the Trenches, the podcast of the Association of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Division Chiefs. My name is Naftali Kaminsky, and I'm your host. Today, our guest is Dr. Terry Laguna. She's the Chief of Pediatric Pulmonary and Sleep Medicine and a Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Washington in Seattle. She's also the Assembly Chair for the Pediatrics Assembly at the ADS. Welcome, Terry. Is it okay that I call you Terry? Sure, of course, please. So um, we've recorded several of these uh, episodes, and we sort of saw that one of the things that works really well for us is basically to have a template. So we usually start with the same question we ask everybody. And, you know, most people know of your, definitely of your research and know of your role and of your position in our community, but they don't necessarily know other things. So is there something we don't know about you that we should know? (laughs) that you should know. That's probably the key point. Well, I, you know, one of the things that um, I think defines me early on in life is my love of music. I've always loved music and particularly when I was going through my formative years, I was a fan of 80s hair metal. So bands like Motley Crue and Rat, um, White Lion, Warrant, Quiet Riot, groups like that. So why not Um, punk? Why not who? Punk, because you were just a few oh, years old. Oh, punk. <laughs> I liked the big, big hair and, okay. you know, the makeup and, yeah, the electric guitars. But I really, you know, I, that inspired me to really want to become a drummer. And I think that, you know, people often ask if you weren't a physician, what would you do or what would be your, your dream job? And I honestly would like to be a drummer in a heavy metal band and sing backup. I have no desire to be a vocalist. I don't want to be out front, but I can do the backup vocals and, and drum away. So I that's still one of my favorite genres of music, and I listen to it still quite often. So, yeah, actually, heavy metal fan. Do you actually play the drums? <laughs> no, that's on my bucket list. I, uh, I played piano growing up. That was my uh, instrument of choice. But it's on my bucket list, and I still aim to do it. Uh, so I will learn how to play the drums one day. I don't know where you were headed, but our section tends to have in our retreats, we we do sometimes karaoke, and um, there's a lot of interesting things, especially if it's a little bit later in the night after a day of meetings, like a retreat. Yep. And, and one of my favorite things was that, uh, and that, you know, we have a lot of women in the section, more than 50%, sure. but some national leaders, and it turned out that the women sang, sang you know, we are the champions. And then one of the men picked, I will survive. It was like perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. So I, I will never be on the, on the stage singing karaoke. I will happily be in the three or four people doing backup singing in the back. I will support that. But you'll never see me out front. So, yeah. And so, hats off to you for having 50%, more than 50% women in your section. That's awesome to hear. It just happened. It's literally not. But I, when I came to Yale, it's an interesting thing. There were already senior, you know, um, Lin Tanui and Patty Lee was sort of the, Lin Tanui was the clinical chief and Patty was sort of interim and, and a lot of early career. And I like, looked at this and I say, how do we not destroy this? Right. And it was almost like, and I think we did a, a decent job and our, Within addition joke, but it's almost like you feel, well, I don't want to sound too radical, but I don't know. Patriarchy is so ingrained that it's really yeah. easy 
you just go back to the way you are, right? And so tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you become a chief? Yeah. So actually your last comment, I think dovetails really nicely to to why I did decide um, to become a division chief. You know, you made a comment um, about how, you know, you you didn't want to mess things up. And I, you know, I I think being a leader um, is all about having, having a platform and being a strategic thinker about how you want to impact the workforce, impact the field, impact the patients, and then using that platform for good. So I, I never set out intending to be a division chief. You know, I I loved my job in cystic fibrosis. I became interested in cystic fibrosis during fellowship and, you know, I started a research program, was a director of the Cystic Fibrosis Center where I built a phenomenal team. And I, I loved that. My background is also in athletics. I played Division One softball. I love working in teams. And, and that's how I thrive and, and do best is working within a team. And I had a fantastic pediatric CF team. And I was happy. I was doing my research. I was leading the CF program and did not want the administrative work of being a division chief. That was really not on my radar screen. Um, However, um, a number of things happened to me as a woman, as a Mexican, as a lesbian woman in medicine that happened to me during my early faculty years that um, really impacted me and, you know, going to my my leaders at the time who were white men, it was a challenge. It was a challenge to be heard. It was a challenge, challenge to find mentorship for people who looked like me. It was a challenge to really have a path forward. You know, it really was because of those experiences and that, that lack of, of a role model and a sponsor or mentor or sponsor that really pushed me to say, okay, how can I prevent that or how can I have an impact on helping those coming after me that, that look like me and that are like me and that are going to struggle in academic medicine because they're underrepresented in some way. And so that, that's really how and why I decided to become a chief. And I, I thought a lot about it because I knew I was going to have to give up certain things and focus on other things in order to be successful. But at the end of the day, looking at where I could have impact on trainees, faculty, patients, it became a very straightforward decision at that point. And I moved to Chicago, where I was a chief for five years, and then now I'm in Seattle, um, where I hope to stay for the rest of my career. So I, it's, that's, it's, it's been a kind of a circuitous path, um, but I wouldn't change it at all. So it's, it's interesting. So, and and I have to say it, that the uh, I literally never thought of myself as a white man. That's a different story. But I realized <laughs> that I am getting an old white man, which even worse is even worse. <laughs> Although my purpose is to become one day a very old white man. There is an interesting thing. So, like for me, and again in a different country, landing in med school and suddenly realizing, oh, I actually, I'm really smart as everybody else, but I don't have the tools of the game because all the other kids were either kids of university professors or physicians. My my mother worked in a retail store, right? And her dream, at least when I was in middle school, was that I will be an electrician, right? So (laughs) suddenly I realized I have this thing that, like, my door is open, right? Because... I literally don't know any other way of, you know, just yeah, opening up the talent and sometimes almost like uh, trying to not look at the usual signs of merits, just 
to see how things happen. But I never thought about it. I, I don't have any of the other experiences that you mentioned. And so sure. I, I, yeah. does, it, does it make you be have a real intentional plan or is it more of a intuition and feeling? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I, I want to comment first on your kind of your allyship and your I mean, your experience in getting to medicine and getting to leadership is also unique. And you bring that unique perspective to your leadership. And I know a number of people that are going to be listening to this probably follow you on Twitter, as do I. And the voice that you have and what you choose to amplify um, is is very inspiring and shows, you know, the qualities of you as a leader. And to me, that is absolutely intentional. It is it is thinking about how do I inspire, help, empower, mentor, pick your word, those people that come to your office, those students that rotate through your division, those fellows, those junior faculty, how do you use your position and your platform to empower others? And your choice to keep your door open, your choice to, you know, to tweet things, your choice to uh, what speaking engagements you choose to accept, what you don't, all of those send messages. And one thing that I've learned is that you never know who's watching, you never know who's listening, who's getting inspired by what you're doing. You know, to you, what is a, you know, I, I'm going to choose not to attend that, I'm not going to give that presentation because there are not enough women that have been invited. Somebody sees that and and is inspired by that and is empowered by that. And and to me, that that's, that's one of the beauties of being a division chief is being able and having the ability to choose what you amplify, to choose who you recruit, to choose the messages you give to your division. And, you know, all of those things are, are important and they're thoughtful. And, you know, it's, and that, that's, I think, for me, one of the important things is to be very thoughtful about how I show up to work every day, what I say to my division, what I say to trainees, um, because I never know who is listening and, you know, who's going to hear some of these things and, and hopefully embark upon a successful career. And that's, that's really what I aim to do. Yeah, I think it makes all, again, it's, there is to some extent, um, I don't know how you call it, we, we do walk in an uncharted path, right? And yeah. now, you know, I, I again, I I once said to one of my mentors that, the people who mentored me actually mostly don't even know that they were my mentors, right? Because I just pay attention to them. It's not like they're not yeah. right? the same thing. Somebody like definitely Lin Tanui on the other side, somebody like uh, Augustine August Choi. I sort of look how they interact with people. And sometimes I say, I'm never going to be able to do it or I don't want to do it. So I think it's a, it's an interesting, but now, so you're, you're in a unique position, right? Because you did this job for, for five years and now you're going to do, well, potentially the same job in a different place. Yep. One is how did you prepare for the first time you took the job? Yeah, and, and yeah. How did you prepare now and what are the lessons? And Yeah. I don't think there is any way that you could possibly prepare for a first chief job. I think some of the valuable skills that you just aren't taught during medical school, during residency, during fellowship, you know, the, the human resource side of things, the, 
the people management skills. Um, those are things that as physicians we aren't often taught. We don't have any formal courses on that. You know, we are able to take some leadership development courses if we're lucky enough to attend, a, you know, a, a AAMC seminar on leadership. Like there are ways that we can try to gain those skills, but oftentimes those are things that are not really taught in our formal um, academic curriculum that we go through to get through through our training. So, you know, in terms of preparation for a chief job, you know, I... <laughs> Honestly, I read a leadership book. <laughs> I read a tra- how to manage change management, <laughs> um, thinking about transitions and you know and change and those types of things and how to prepare a team for change. And but I I, I just don't think there really was any preparation. You know the skills that I've learned um, over the past five years in my first chief job. I mean the financial skills again. Those are things that we don't learn in academic medicine. You know how the budgets and you know the the financial stewardship, and I mean, those types of things, and again, are, are all new skills that I think as leaders were not taught. And so, you know, the first couple of years were, were tough as you try to learn all of these things very quickly to help make decisions, build programs, recruit new people. You know, it's, it's not an easy journey or an easy path. However, I think, you know, as part of that is, is building relationships and building partnerships and, you know, some of the things that I've learned you know, learning the administrative side of things and how valuable administrative partners are and how valuable, you know, learning how to collaborate with people who don't have, who have skills that aren't, that you don't have. Um, really building a team is the key to, to success anywhere, but particularly in being a division chief because you're relying on other people who have the skills that you don't. You know, coming into this next position here in Seattle, I've been here two weeks, I think. Um, so I just started on February 1st. But I feel a lot more prepared, actually, having done this now for five years and feeling relatively comfortable with some of my knowledge of the finances and the budgets and recruitment and sponsorship and mentorship. I feel a lot more prepared. Um, but that first, those first few years are there. It's a lot. It's a lot of, of information very quickly. Um, but I definitely feel that my experience will help me in leading a bigger division with a bigger research portfolio, with a bigger um, national platform, um, and the ability to just do more good things, um, which is really what I intend to do. Okay, so I've no doubt that you'll double research funding in the next five years. Um, <laughs> although they probably have a good portfolio anyway. But um, <laughs> thank you for the confidence. Yep. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And I sort of am not worried about the clinical stuff, but the same thing, the sort of how do you keep the hitting on the missions of the sort of the cliche of diversity, right? Yeah. Especially in a place that's sort of a little bit expensive to live. Yeah. And also tend to be a little bit regional specific, uh, or, maybe, or maybe that's a benefit, right? So, how, but how do you do it? So, for instance, when I came to Yale, I it was amazing, right? The people were so accomplished. Right. And, but on the other hand, I looked at it and, um, our recruitment was very diverse. If you consider the people living a hundred miles from New Haven diverse, which is, they're very diverse ethnically, but there's still five or six schools, right? We just a little bit broke it up, like recruited a little bit of more international medical graduates and a little bit actually specifically tried to recruit people from residency programs in, in the South and other things. And it, I think it worked well. And yep. I, that was actually one of the only things that people were sort of a little bit wondering at the beginning, is this going to work? 
right? Because yeah. people would say, okay, nobody, if they don't have a reason to live in New Haven, why would they come? And I said, well, it's yeah. silly, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and, 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 but, but I think the same, we all have the same challenges. So how, how do you address this? How do you actually recruit um, yeah. the people who are less of the majority in this country? Yeah, I, that's a great question. And yeah, I mean, I, I think it is something that everybody struggles with. And I, um, for me, I think, I think it's about, it's about the message and it, it's about, you know, telling people what your, me, what my goals are, what I'm trying to do with the division, and not just locally, but thinking more broadly with the national platforms we have, working within ATF, working within other organizations where, you know, it, it's about our patient populations. And here in Washington State, you know, while our workforce may not be that diverse, our patient population is. We take care of a very diverse patient population. Um, we had that issue in Chicago as well. I mean, our patient population was incredibly diverse, but it didn't match the diversity of the faculty. And so, you know, it's about the message. It's about, you know, focusing on health disparities, focusing on clinical outcomes, focusing on research um, that is going to help our patients have better outcomes. And we know that, you know, if your, if your workforce is diverse and matches the diversity of your patients, you're going to have better outcomes. And recruiting, for me, has always been about finding the right person. So, you know, you advertise for a job or a position, you're going to get people that apply. And the key for me has been, it's not just about having a body fill a role, it's about having the right person that buys into the mission, that buys into the goals of what we're trying to accomplish, and then providing them, if they choose to come, with the resources to help them accomplish that mission. And I've, I've been, um, whether you call it lucky or whether you call it, you know, just very passionate about what I believe in and people that want to be a part of that um, have chosen to come. And I'm, you know, now being in Seattle with, again, kind of a, a big division with a lot of opportunity um, and a department chair in a hospital that is very focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, you know, it, it also starts at the top. Right? It starts at with the people who are making the decisions, allocating the resources, and what they view as priorities, and working for an institution that's prioritizing being an anti-racist institution or being a diverse institution, um, that absolutely helps because you know you're going to have the support of your chair and the support of your hospital and your department. So um, I'm excited to, you know, to bring people that are wanting to come to Seattle, um, wanting to work for, uh, be a part of you know, working on increasing the diversity of the workforce, improving patient outcomes across the board. I mean, cystic fibrosis is still a passion of mine. And the health disparities in CF having to do with delayed diagnosis, access to modulators, early mortality and not in um, Hispanic white individuals and black individuals. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. There is so much work to be done in that in those areas. And so it's, it's just finding the right people that, that are, are focused on that mission. So just tagging on, on on the cystic fibrosis and you sort of know, for me, it's like as an IPF doc, and by the way, when I started my career, half of my 70-year-old patients would tell me, oh, do I have cystic fibrosis? Mm-hmm. And yeah. I would tell them, to be honest, you do have the real cystic fibrosis because you do have cysts and 
and fibrosis in your lung, which cystic fibrosis patients don't have. That's a different discussion. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, yeah. but and the other thing is 20 years ago when I started, we were in the same place, not much hope. And now cystic fibrosis sort of completely changed, right? It's unbelievable. Yeah. But, but it's also scary disease because it shows you that, you know, we may be able one day to cure stuff, but most people will not be cured still. So I know that the cystic fibrosis community is fully in live with this discussion. So can you share with us all that your thoughts about that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the landscape of CF has absolutely changed from the time that I was in training, obviously, until now, you know, with the now the median life expectancy well into the 50s, which is just unheard of. And with the approval of these new medications that actually hit the root of the problem and make that chloride channel work, which we've never been able to accomplish before. It's always been about treating the complications of cystic fibrosis. We've never been able to impact the actual cause, which is making that chloride channel work. We've really, we're in a completely different era now of cystic fibrosis care. Um, I would caution people in that it, it, it doesn't mean the disease is cured. I think it just means that with our current medicines, we have a very different disease that we are still learning about. You know, the CF Foundation is obviously still chasing a cure, and that would ultimately be some form of gene therapy or gene editing where they could completely just change the code and make that chloride channel work for everybody, which is, I think, what the goal is. And so there's still an incredible amount of work that's going on. One, to try to understand what is the new disease we have now, because not everybody responds the same way to these medications, and not everybody qualifies for this medicine. There are a number of medicines that have been approved, and I think, you know, I mentioned health disparities earlier. Um, you know, people that have more rare mutations um, that are different from those that are most common don't qualify for these life-changing medications, and a large percentage or proportion of those are, are people who are from black and brown communities. No. And, and so this, this, the, these medications have created a disparity where people with rare mutations that happen to be from underrepresented communities don't qualify for them. And so it's, you know, it's really bought, you know, put a, a limelight and a spotlight on the importance of a cure for all and not stopping the research until we have that. And, and the CF Foundation has demonstrated its commitment and continues to invest to try to find the ultimate cure. Um, but for now, we still are, you know, in Chicago, where we have over 30% of our patients um, are, are black or brown, we still have a number of, of children in the hospital with exacerbations. Um, so it's, it's not going away. It's, you know, it, it definitely has impacted the lives of many, many people with CF. Um, and that's been amazing to see. But in no way are we done with the work and the research um, until we can find a cure for everybody. Yeah, it looks fascinating and exciting. And, uh... It is. So, the, you know, as as I mentioned before, this podcast is sort of is run by the Association of uh, Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Division Chiefs. And it started sort of the whole association started. The idea was to create a toolbox for chiefs and other things. I don't know how much you're familiar with the organization, but do you see a role with it? Do you want to 
a few years ago, we put in a big effort to make sure that there is attendance by the the uh, pediatric divisions. And frankly, considering that although there's an increase in women chiefs, it's still a small fraction. Would you be interested in getting involved? Do you see a role for this uh, organization? Absolutely. I I would love to be more involved because I think, you know, no matter what you are a division chief of, I think there is always something to be learned and gained um, from the knowledge of your peers. And, you know, on the pediatric side, and by the way, thank you for for inviting a pediatrician uh, to be on your podcast. Appreciate it. Yep. We do have a part of the group. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we, we have we have a pediatric pulmonology division directors association group that, you know, we do. We also have meetings at least twice a year to try to create that camaraderie. I wouldn't say we've had the most success at it. So, I mean, I, I'm always looking for ways to be involved and and to try to, you know, to find like minded individuals and the gender equity paper that the group put out um, is one that, it, that I often refer to that I send to my, you know, to trainees and people that I'm talking, that I'm talking to. So I, I absolutely see the value. And, and yes, I, I would love to be more involved however I can in that group. So, yeah, sign me up. I actually feel that we probably need to. So this, we did it, I think we started thinking about that. Manuscript in 2016. Oh, we did the workshop. I actually think the one thing that was missing was actually a timeline and a critical action plan. So, what are the measurables? So, we had all these. So, I actually think it's about time to revisit it. Um, Yeah. And in general, looking a little bit, there's a new generation of, or really new generation, the, the last few years of division chiefs that again, they're going into a different world. I know that being a chief 20 years ago was easier. I've been a chief now 10 years, 10 years. So I think the the job has gotten more complex every year because of finances and other things. So I think there's a lot of things yeah. to do. So yeah, we would love. Absolutely. Uh, if you yeah. And then, um, so I think we're sort of towards the, the end. Um, and I finish with the same question to everybody. And this is, uh, if you had the opportunity to go back in time and speak with your young self, as a, I don't know. <laughs> resident, what advice would you give to yourself? Yeah, I think, you know, back when I was a resident and as a, as a fellow, when I was in training, you know, I would look at people in, in positions and just think to myself, how, how did they get there? Like, how, what is the path that they took? And thinking to myself that there was one path to get to define success. And, and and I think, you know, for me, it would have been helpful to know that you're going to get there and you may not get there immediately and you may take some detours and you may hit setbacks and it may not be a straight line between here and there. Um, but to just to trust yourself and have confidence in who you are, confidence in your decision making. And that also, I guess, you know, that you're the one that defines success. And, you know, looking at all the metrics that come from, you know, your operations people and your academic people and, you know, the measures of success. And really, at the end of the day, it's about you. And are you happy in the job that you're doing? And and so I wish I could have told my resident self, like, take a breath. You're going to get there. And you have to you have to take care of yourself and be, be focused on what's going to make you happy. Um, because it's just 
looking at people and grants and papers and all the things that are being that they use to define success and just being able to have confidence in yourself that you're going to get there. And it may not look like what you thought it was going to look like as a resident, but you're you're going to get there. I think that's a great message and a great way to end is basically, well, you're going to get there. And yeah, you know, the, the you define success because, you know, sometimes when, you know, we have a really big fellowship program and a big T32 uh, but not everybody wants to be a physician scientist. They all have to do research. And not everybody wants to be a clinician educator also, right? And some want to yep. be just full-time clinicians. And some want to yep. be administrators, right? And, yep. and some want to be, I don't know, per, you know, uh, traveling critical care docs. And I always, when I meet with the fellows, I say, you know, the truth is for me, the definition of the failure failure hasn't changed. I took it again for my mother, which is if you steal from somebody who's poor, if you kill somebody or if you cheat, you failed. All the rest is right. you know, you're probably good. You yeah. know. And 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 actually the other thing of course was she she would add, of course, after you finish med school, because this was the the fear of failure, right? <laughs> But there is something there, I think, that for, for most yeah. of us in healthcare, we're doing the good things. We're in the good fight anyway. Right? Absolutely. So the way we choose to do it is, is yeah. less important than we're there. Right. right. Absolutely. And, and yeah. we stay healthy when we're doing it. Yeah. So I love it. So uh, thank you, Terry. And uh, yeah, yeah. a pleasure. Same here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening for today's episode with Dr. Laguna. This episode of From the Trenches was brought to you by the American Thoracic Society and the Association of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Division Chief. If you enjoy this podcast, please like, rate, review, and subscribe to follow us on the ATS website or on your favorite podcast application. As always, don't forget to send us comments or uh, pitches or ideas. And again, thanks for listening, and don't miss our next episode where we meet with Dr. Lynn Schnapp.